Well, I'm a little bit reluctant in some ways to step into the study this morning. Um, I'm going to spend some time uh, kind of wrapping up, wrapping up and transitioning uh, from chapter 9 moving into chapter 10, because when you come to verses 24 to 27 in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, we are really looking at what many scholars consider to be a transition section, a transition passage, sort of bridging or transitioning thought from what the Apostle Paul is addressing or dealing with in 1 Corinthians 9 and moving us into his Uh, subject of emphasis in chapter 10. And of course, you see in chapter 10, verse 1, it begins with four. I do not want you to be unaware. So you can even see in the language there that this is a continuation. As we've discussed, this this whole section of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10 is really one big section dealing with this matter of Christian liberties and really more, more prominently the abuse of Christian liberties to the exclusion of concern or care or love for our fellow believers and for our public testimony. The, the, the current real-time first century issue that was on the table that we talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 was this whole matter of eating food sacrificed to idols, this pagan you know, ritual, this pagan practice and, and the Apostle Paul sort of deals at length in chapter 8 with this whole matter of being willing to lay aside what is in fact a liberty, that eating food sacrificed to idols in and of itself is not sinful, that an idol is not anything. So food sacrificed to an idol, if you go buy meat in the market, for example, that was meat that was part of a you know, sacrifice, and a ritual, ritualistic sacrifice or pagan sacrifice, that that is not in and of itself sinful because an idol isn't anything, he says. And yet, if there are brothers, there are brothers and sisters who are, whose consciences are provoked or offended by such action, uh, that it is incumbent upon brothers and sisters to recognize that in life in the body and to lay aside that liberty willingly, gladly, to not claim it, to not hold on to it, and to certainly not boast in it and, and not sort of fight to hold on to it is the idea. And then the Apostle Paul goes into chapter 9 and begins to talk about rights and his liberties and his rights as an apostle and holds up sort of this illustrative material around his right as an apostle and the right of the minister of the gospel to be uh, compensated for the work of ministry. But his willingness to lay even that aside, lay aside even the source of sustenance, if, if it would be some cause of provocation or if it would be, serve as some kind of hindrance to the advancement of the gospel. This whole section then continues on with that, that concept or that, that struggle, if you will, in the Corinthian church. But you come to verse 24, verses 24 to 27 in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and you see this obvious metaphor of athletics being raised up. And, a, and I immediately become convicted because I'm in terrible shape right now. I begin to read a little bit about, uh, for example training regimens of Olympic athletes. You think about what an Olympic athlete goes through if they're really training and preparing for competition at that level. And the the stories that you will read are staggering in terms of the sacrifices that they make, the time and discipline that they employ, the level of effort that they engage in, the the pain, even, that they are willing to endure. And this is for years. 
And depending upon the nature of the event that you compete in, you could go through all of that and in an instant be disqualified or to not achieve whatever end that you had hoped to achieve. Whatever your training was, was driving you toward, you, you, you know, one, one shot of the gun, one race, and you're out. And so this, this idea of athletic competition and the rigor of training and preparation is really the nature of this metaphor. And, and, and the, the subject at hand is this idea of running a race and running it in such a way that you will win. That's the whole idea here. So let's, let's read this together, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now clearly, this is a reference to familiar ideas and concepts, not only to us, but certainly to the Corinthians. But I want to talk to us today a little bit about this idea of running to win. We could take that in a lot of different directions, but we certainly want to make sure we hold to the context and understand what the Apostle Paul is really dealing with here. He is still dealing with this principle of self-sacrifice, of being willing to give up to gain, of being willing to lay something down for a greater purpose. And so this is still the idea that's in play that he's, he's uh, driving toward and using these these metaphors of, of athletic competition. But let's just, let's just sort of seek to answer a general question from the text, and we'll, we'll kind of dig in and, and, and pull out maybe more salient insights from it as we go through. But let's just a- ask and answer the question, how do you, or what's necessary for us to run this race so that we win? Or run in such a way maybe I should say, that we'll win. And I just want to go through a few points that I think emerge clearly from this text. I think are pretty straightforward for us. But I think that there's application points for us. There's thought-provoking things that we need to consider here as we, as we allow this text to sort of run through our own hearts and minds. The first, the first necessity for us, if we're going to run this race, this Christian race, this life in the body of Christ race, if we're going to run it in such a way that we would win, the first thing that we have to do is recognize the race that we're in. It might seem simplistically obvious, but I think with a little thought and reflection, we'll see that it's not always so obvious. He says in verse 24, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He starts with what has become a very familiar rhetorical question. This is the Apostle Paul's sort of rhetorical go-to, if you will, when he's really trying to make a point. He asks this question, do you not know? This is the tenth time he's done this in 1 Corinthians alone. Do you not know? It's it's him asking a question that has an, an obvious answer. The Corinthians 
know this. And so by virtue of him asking this question, his orientation is to expose the folly that they're exhibiting. So this principle of recognizing the race that we're in, we can't pass over that too quickly. The Apostle Paul certainly doesn't. He starts again with this familiar rhetorical question. And the clear implication here is that the Corinthians are massively missing something that should be as obvious to them as the answer to this question actually is. And the reason why the answer to the question is so obvious is because he employs a very familiar metaphor. The running of a race. A race in which all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. Now, why would this be such a familiar metaphor to the Corinthians? Who remembers from our introduction to this study? What do we know about Corinth? The games, the Isthmian games, right? Corinth was located on an isthmus. Say that fast three times. A little strip of land on either side, water on either sides connecting two larger sections of land. And there were, there were every two years this grand athletic festival called the Ithmian Games, or the Isthmian Games, we'll call it. And so he is, he is employing a metaphor that would be extremely familiar to the Corinthians. These games, according to one commentator, they were held every two years under the patronage of Corinth, and they were second only to the Olympics. I mean, this was big. They were extravagant festivals of religion, athletics, and the arts, attracting thousands of competitors and visitors from all over the empire. Its sponsors and greater athletes were honored in the Isthmia itself by monuments and statues and inscriptions. Paul likely would have been in Corinth during the games in AD 51, in the spring. Since there were no Permanent facilities, this commentator goes on to say, there was no permanent facilities for visitors until the 2nd century A.D. They had to stay in tents, which might have been Paul's opportunity to interact with all these visitors coming to these games in Corinth. So the fact that this is just familiar territory, it's not just that this was the locale of these games, but it's quite possible that there was activity and interaction and engagement at the time of these games, by the Apostle Paul himself and with these people that he's talking to. So this idea of recognizing the race that you're in and the Apostle Paul invoking this kind of metaphor, he's saying you guys are missing something that should be so patently obvious to you. Oscar Branier, a Swedish-American archaeologist, who's known for the discovery of the Temple of Isthmia, He conjectures that Paul would have had ample opportunity to ply his trade and share the gospel with the crowds visiting the games of that year. Dio, the first century Greek historian, mentions the six basic athletic events that made up the games. Racing, wrestling, jumping, boxing, hurling the javelin, and throwing the discus. Two of those events he mentions in this, this, this text. This is like talking to them about something that's actually in their living room and saying, do you see this? That's how overtly obvious and pointed this rhetorical question is. Every two years in the city of Corinth, athletes, merchants, prominent citizens of the Roman Empire would descend on this place every two years. This was a part of their culture. It was a part of their livelihood. 
It was such an obvious statement. It would be like this. Now, I, I wasn't born in Texas, but I grew up there, so I'm essentially from Texas. Because, you know, if, you're from te- if you've lived Texas long enough, then you kind of get adopted as a citizen of the state. But this would be like, like saying something like, do you not know that barbecue brisket is far superior than pulled pork? When we moved to Georgia and went to have barbecue, I was like, come on, pulled pork, come on. But it's that kind of cultural resonance in this question to almost like flatten them to say, you're missing something significant. Do you know what the race you're even in? Do you understand it? When you see the Apostle Paul or any writer of Scripture employing this kind of, this kind of device to get the reader's attention, it should cause us to sort of stand at attention as well. We have to ask ourselves the question, do we really know the nature of the race that we're in right now? Are we cognizant of this race that we're in? He goes on to provide after this familiar question that raises up the issue and this familiar metaphor that kind of puts it on full display. He rounds it out with an obvious exhortation. Well, if you know this, if you understand this, if this is so obvious to you, then run that you may obtain it. Like get in the race. Race like you know what it's about. Now, to just clarify something here, and this, the nature of this metaphor has often been misinterpreted, it's often been misused. This whole section is not the Apostle Paul trying to tell everybody, okay, we just got to try harder, we got to work harder. It's certainly not, thank the Lord, uh, exhortation toward greater sort of you know, workout discipline, otherwise I'm like in a puddle of tears right now. It's not about distinguishing the soul winner from all the other competitors. Even though he says, runs so that you may obtain it, even though there is this emphasis on running so that you may win, the point of the metaphor, the point of this passage is not to say, you need to run so that you beat everybody else. That would be an odd metaphor for exhorting Christians in the life of the church. Make sure that as you run this race, you win the Christian race and beat every other Christian in the room. That would be sort of an exhortation toward pride, right? I mean, that's not how he's, that's not the direction he's going here, for sure. He's not characterizing the Christian life as a race in which Christians are competing against one another for some kind of singular prize. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever when you think about the broader understanding of the church and of Christian doctrine, and even of the context here. He's talking about sacrificing for other believers. He's not talking about competing against them so that you can beat them to the ground and embarrass them or shame them and claim the prize for yourself. He's highlighting here the kind of awareness and motivation that drives all the runners in a race. You think about this for a second. If you are training for the Olympics, for example, in a particular event, the I think the obvious assumption is that every competitor who has trained for this particular moment, this particular competition, in this Olympic event that comes around every four years, that, that 
virtually, if not 100%, every competitor has trained in such a way that they would win, right? That's the idea. Every competitor is aware of the nature of this race, and so therefore the training and the discipline that goes into it is the kind that would say, this is my shot, I'm running to win. Every person that's in the race thinks like that about it. That's the idea. He's talking about what drives all the runners. And this becomes even more clear when you move on to verse 25. You begin to see this kind of crystallize, and he goes to sort of this next, this next point that would help us to know how to run this race in order to win. So not only do we need to recognize the race that we're in, but secondly, we need to resolve to sacrifice in order to win. And again, he get, he, this is where he kind of explains this more fully. Look at verse 25. He says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable now, every elite athlete, I mean, you could talk to me later if you want to know what, how elite athletes think. I'll be happy to share with you. But every elite athlete, every professional athlete, you know, that you see interviews with or you see some kind of uh, documentary or whatever, they, they almost invariably, they'll all tell you that it was the training. It was the, it was the constant day in and day out work. It was the workouts. It was the coaching. It was all that that actually enabled me that at the moment of performance to perform at the level that I performed at. So this is sort of common understanding. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is sort of driving the thinking toward. It's the preparation and the sacrifice that the competitor endured that enabled them to perform at the time of the competitive event. So he's, he's literally talking about something other than the event itself. The main focus is not just the, the singular event and individual believers running so that they get the individual reward. This is about a recognition that you are in a race and you need to run the race in such a way that you are wanting to win the race, which goes to the kind of sacrifice that you're resolved to engage in in order to win. And remember, the context here is laying aside on behalf of other believers. Laying aside your liberty or your privilege to eat food sacrificed to idols, to partake of something that others might feel is provocative. The athletes who competed in the Isthmian Games were actually required to spend 10 months in a, a, a strict training regimen. They had to give up all kinds of freedoms and privileges and even the indulgences that were common in that day and time. Many of which the Apostle Paul has to deal with with the Corinthians. We've already talked about several of them. And they had to, they had to completely and fully devote themselves to this preparation for the games. So again, thinking about the fact that he's addressing the Corinthians, residents of Corinth, Patrons of the, these, this grand comp competitive event that came around every two years. He is speaking right to them about something that they would intimately understand. That, that none of these competitors that compete in these games that we have seen happen time and time again. That we actually make our livelihoods from when people come to town and we sell things to them. I mean, no one they would know can come to the, to the starting line or into whatever arena that they're going to be competing in 
having not prepared for 10 months. If you didn't do that, you were disqualified before the event even happened. So, so this particular language and this particular instruction was penetrating around this whole principle of having resolve to sacrifice in order to win. There's commitment and conviction around it. You're running a race in such a way that you will win, and so naturally, of course, you have to be willing to set aside freedoms and indulgences and things that everyone else seems to be doing around you freely. You have to set that aside if you're going to win this race. The focus here, as I've said, is on self-control, self-restraint, and self-sacrifice. As, by the way, a hallmark of what it means to be a Christian. When we talk about this race, we can certainly talk about it in the context of what Paul's dealing with in Corinth in the first century with this church and these believers here. But the fact of the matter is, is this, this is... This is a, these are the hallmarks of actually just the Christian life. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. I mean, one of the evidences of life in Christ and the Spirit in us is that we are characterized by self-control. Self-restraint, self-sacrifice, dying that you may live, serving as Christ served, washing your brother's feet. I mean, all these different principles are characteristic of what it even means to be Christian. One commentator, Richard Hayes, he reminds us that Paul's argument does not suggest that the body is the enemy of spiritual life. Rather, it is the instrument of that life. And the punishment of the body refers to grueling training for the contest, seeking to bring the body to peak efficiency. To enslave the body means in this context to devote it unreservedly to God's service through service to others not to practice self-denial for its own sake. So this is not some kind of call to asceticism, to self-denial, and then somehow in that self-denial, there is the virtue. You know, there is that whole mistaken pathway. You had, you know, monks that would, they would, you know, beat themselves physically and think that somehow that was moving them toward virtue. Or you would have a different strand of monks that would go off in, in complete isolation and they would hold themselves up in different you know, caves or, or towers and, and they would be completely isolated and they would live in isolation apart from everybody forever, I mean, until they died. And they would deny themselves sustenance. They would live off the most meager portions and they would think that in that would be virtue, would be running the race. That's not at all what he's talking about. He's talking about a willingness to lay aside even physical preferences, physical freedoms, in this case, meat, food of a certain kind, as a means toward serving God through serving others. Our sense of of self-control and our sense of self-denial and self-sacrifice It's not the virtue in and of itself. Christ came and gave himself up and gave his life as a ransom for many, to rescue many. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. It's this kind of motivation 
It's this kind of joy. It's this kind of willing sacrifice and service that's to be the, the hallmark of the believer in this race. And all of this, the, these, these competitors in these games, all that sacrifice that they were willing to endure, even athletes today, all the sacrifice and all the, the discipline and all the self-denial that they're willing to, to endure, the competitors in these games, they would do all of this for the chance to win a head wreath that was literally woven out of wilted celery. That's, that's the wreath that he's talking about, the perishable wreath. Now, obviously, that was a symbol of accomplishment. It was, you know, they would have statues built after them. They would, you know, have all kinds of, you know, gifts and things thrown at them. I mean, it was, they, they would become famous, like, like athletes today. You, they become famous, and they, they find themselves on cereal boxes and endorsing cars and all these kinds of things, and they're paid ridiculous sums of money to say five words on TV about some product, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's a celery wreath, even all that. That's the perspective that the Apostle Paul is drawing up here with this, this reference to an imperishable wreath. He, he knows that the wreath is not in and of itself the thing. He knows that the athletes are competing for the glory and the fame and, and all the accolades and the wealth and the money that go along with it. But he's saying it's perishable. It's just like a, it's just like a wilted celery wreath that you would put on your head. It's just like that. And yet they're willing to do all of this for that. And this is to draw a stark contrast to this imperishable reward that we're racing for. That awaits every faithful Christian who runs this race and endures to the end. James 1 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now you begin to see here inferences to what you might refer to as perseverance or endurance to the end as as a characteristic of a true believer. We're going to talk more about that. We may even do a whole session on it in a couple of weeks, but... But just note that what he's talking about is he's talking about enduring, persevering in this race. And he's he's articulating, at least by inference, where he articulates much more explicitly in other places, this principle of the work of God in sustaining a true believer to the end. You see this even in chapter 1. If you look at chapter 1, one of the ways that the Apostle Paul characterizes these Corinthian believers, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both our Lord and theirs, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, 
so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the characteristic of every believer. Every believer is marked by persevering endurance in the faith. Not perfection, but perseverance. There is an element where he's, he's also sort of setting up what he refers to in 2 Corinthians as a cause for examination. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are, we are competing in a race, we are running in a race, and we are to run in such a way that we'll win, and what we're seeking to win, what we're seeking to endure for, is this imperishable reward. There is an eschatological kind of character to this reward that he's talking about here. It's eternal in nature. He's absolutely referring to our restored fellowship an eternal fellowship with the living God. This is, this is the kind of contrast that he's drawing here. That certainly you and I, if we know the race that we're in, and we understand the nature of this imperishable reward, and we know that it is God who committed to sustain us to the end, then certainly part of what we're more than willing to do so that we run this race to win is to lay aside things in order to do that. These athletes who are competing for celery stalks do that. One commentator says this, Athletes exercise such self-control in order to get a crown that will not last, literally a perishable crown, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever, literally an imperishable one. This reflects the standard philosophical use of the athletic motif whereby the award sought by those pursuing athletic victory is contrasted with the greater one pursued by the one dedicating their life to virtue and philosophy. In other words, this is a principle that even the philosophers spoke of. Seneca, the famous first century Roman philosopher, provides a good example of the motif. He says this, quote, What blows do athletes receive on their faces and all over their bodies? Nevertheless, through their desire for fame, they endure every torture. And they undergo these things not only because they are fighting, but in order to be able to fight. Their very training means torture. So let us also win the way to victory in all our struggles. For the reward reward is not a garland or a palm or a trumpeter who calls for silence at the proclamation of our names, but rather virtue, steadfastness of soul, and peace that is one for all time. That's a secular philosopher who understands this principle of something imperishable, something that's transcendent. The athlete who is willing to sacrifice and be even tortured, if you will, physically to gain something temporal, how much more should the believer be willing to sacrifice and lay aside and work and train and be disciplined in order to win this imperishable prize? So we have to resolve to sacrifice in order to win. And finally, we have to recommit to purpose and discipline. If we're going to win, we have to recommit ourselves to 
purpose and discipline. You see this in verses 26 to 27. So I do not run aimlessly. Paul begins to kind of turn the attention to himself again. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Even if we know that we as believers are always in a race or in some kind of fight or battle, we still have to realize that our flesh, that the enemy of our souls, the accuser of the brethren, the serpent of old, the world around us, these are constantly working against us. So even if we're aware that we're in a fight, even if we know that we're in a race, there are forces arrayed against us at all times, and they're oriented toward taking us off course, to undermining our sense of purpose. Now think about this for a second as a, as a, a fellow traveler, as a, as a fellow journeyman or journey person, to be politically correct. Think of this for a second. Is it not indeed true that once you move past a certain stage of your Christian discipleship and maturity, that it's not so much that your struggle is with sort of the basic disciplines of moral living. Or even as you move into adulthood as a Christian, sort of basic principles of wise living. I mean, you're sort of hemmed in in many ways. If you've got a family, if you've got children, it's like, I need to be wise. I don't want to be a foolish. And I, I, there's things that hem you in. I need to pay my bills on time so they don't take all of our stuff away or kick us out of our house. You see what I'm saying? I mean, you become sort of adept as you just naturally develop. You become more, more grounded in just basic principles of fundamental morality and, and just basic principles of wise living. But what can also happen to even the most mature believers? You can become aimless. You can have your sense of mission and purpose diminish. This is is the thing that he's talking about here. I have to recommit myself to what I'm called to. I have to remind myself of the mission. I, I don't just get to walk around and be an adult and pay my bills on time and, you know, not... You know, steal or rob or you know, commit murder and you know, have a generally moral Ten Commandment kind of life, and I'm good. The real challenge for me is to be running a race to win, and the undermining effect of the world and the enemy of my soul and all the influences around me and my very flesh within me is to just be aimless, purposeless. That's why he uses these two metaphors. You're in the race, but you're not running toward a finish line at all. You're wandering. You're meandering. If you've ever watched high-level Olympic track competition, and you've seen races that are decided by split-second timing, you've seen instances where the slightest misstep costs someone a race. He's talking about having that kind of redoubled focus toward purpose, toward mission, toward calling. And not just purpose, but discipline. Recommitting ourselves to basic disciplines of Christian life and Christian maturity. He uses this metaphor of disciplining his body. It literally means to give himself a black eye. That's the literal definition of this term. To, to, To pummel my body and make it my slave, he's saying. To keep it under control. 
And I have to recommit to that all the time. My disciplines get slack. I begin to lose my sense of purpose. I begin to allow myself to engage in internal conversations of, I don't know why I'm all, what's this all about? Why why do we have to be there? Why why do I have to do this again? I have to have this conversation. I mean, we start to just sort of lose our sense of calling and mission and purpose. And one of the first things that goes is our willingness to sacrifice, to lay aside something for a fellow believer. That's one of the first things to go when we become aimless. And we begin to beat the air, and we're not actually making contact with the opponent who's in the ring with us. The Apostle Paul says, no, I I don't run like that. I don't box like that. In fact, I go to extreme lengths to discipline myself and to double down on my recommitment to mission and purpose so that I don't find myself just running aimlessly and just beating at the air and not making any kind of contact. In other words, as you guys well know, but we all need to be reminded, the Christian life is not a set-it-and-forget-it enterprise. We are constantly needing to recommit ourselves to mission and purpose and calling and discipline if we're going to win this, run this race as though we're going to win. And we can't just make this about associations. We have to make it about personal commitment and conviction. And see, this is kind of where he goes with this at the end of this section. Any so-called believer, and I emphasize so-called believer, who thinks this way, who thinks that I prayed a prayer when I was this old or I raised my hand back then, or their testimony of their walk with Christ is more history than current events, And they have this mindset that their salvation is contingent upon some act that they did way back when. And it's a set it and forget it kind of mindset. And they're not in the race at all. And they're not sacrificing and laying themselves down and sacrificing for other believers. They're not even really fully engaged in the lives of other believers. This kind of so-called believer who thinks this way and lives this way is at risk of being disqualified and not gaining the imperishable crown of eternal fellowship with God. That's what he's saying. If the Apostle Paul would say, this is what I do, lest after preaching to others, after making a big hoopla about this gospel, that I myself should be disqualified? It's a similar kind of approach that the Apostle Paul has here as he's had all the way through chapter 9, where he's saying, in response to the Corinthians' claim of liberties and rights, you get to verse 9, and he's like, you want to talk about rights? Let's talk about my rights for a second. Here he's saying, lest I be disqualified? Imagine such a thing. The person who's proclaiming to you these truths, who's teaching you in the way, and yet I'm not willing to lay aside things myself. I'm not willing to recommit myself to a life of purpose and mission. I'm not willing to do whatever it takes to discipline myself in this regard. I'm willing to talk about it and proclaim it, but I'm not willing to do it. I'm disqualified by that kind of mindset, by that kind of attitude. That does more to reveal the true nature of my heart than anything else. The way that the Apostle Paul 
speaks to this in the second letter to the Corinthians. And as you know, you look at 1 Corinthians and you look at the salutation that I just read to you and all these ways that he identifies them as saints and those who will be sustained to the end by the power of God in Christ. They had a lot of problems. And the the reality is, is that in Corinth and in his ministry and message to the Corinthians, as is the case in any viable biblically-based ministry, you're dealing with people who are both true believers and people who are thinking they're believers, but they're not ultimately true believers. That's always the case. You don't always know what you're dealing with, right? I mean, you, you, you don't always know. He's doing the same thing here. And so he gets to the second letter in chapter 15, verse 5, and he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. There is a reality of eternal life. Eternal life in the truly redeemed believer has an inevitable way of working itself out. That is the nature of eternal life. That's why I raised this matter of the doctrine of perseverance because the Apostle Paul is actually touching on this in a certain way. That the believer, I mean, this is all about endurance. It's all about persevering. It's all about running to win an imperishable prize. It's all about living life in such a way and disciplining myself in such a way and and recommitting myself and my mind and my heart to mission and purpose in such a way so that I'm not disqualified. We're not talking about some kind of works-based righteousness or works-based salvation. We're talking about genuine spiritual life in the believer that actually works itself out. Like I said, not perfectly, not without failure or falling, but it absolutely works itself out. Let's close by just a reference to 1 Peter. And we may pick this up again as a bit of a side study. Now, what we know about Peter is that Peter did not perfectly execute on all fronts in his life of discipleship, right? In fact, at a critical moment in time, it was Peter, none other than Peter, none other than vocal and bold Peter, not other than, none other than Peter grab a sword and chop off a centurion's ear, Peter, It was that Peter who, when confronted by a girl in the plaza area at the the, the evening before the crucifixion, denied Christ three times. That Peter. Can you think of a more egregious failure than that? That person, at that time, under those circumstances, and he fails. But here's what Peter wrote in his letter in 1 Peter. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do, do you not, though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the testimony of a man who failed miserably, but who persevered and endured, who stepped back into the race, who committed himself to purpose and discipline, who understood the kind of race that he was in, and who was resolved to a level of self-sacrifice that is characteristic of the faithful believer who perseveres. This is the call for us. This is what he has called us to. This kind of running. This kind of race. This kind of self-sacrifice. This kind of endurance. God help us to persevere and endure and run the race to win it. Let's pray.